And I want to come tonight to talk about the matter of prayer. Now I know that what you do not need tonight is a bunch of uh, verses about prayer laid on you. I don't think you even need nor do you want some kind of a theological sermon on prayer, the theology of prayer. And I know that you don't want somebody to lay a guilt trip on you tonight about your prayerlessness. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on prayer, probably have never preached one, that didn't make folks feel guilty about how little prayer, how little they pray. And we prayed all these people out who pray, you know, six or seven hours a day and say, see there, if you were what you ought to be, you'd be doing that. And by the time we leave, we feel terribly guilty. I'm not going to do that at all. What I want to talk to you tonight about prayer is this, this, how this can come about that a person can just go before God and enjoy His presence. Now before I read the passage from uh, Matthew, which is really the text, I want to read from Philippians chapter 4, and I'd like for you to turn to that fourth chapter of Philippians. And reading verses 1 through 9, listen carefully. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Synthike to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. Now the Apostle Paul describes several things that everybody wants, very few people have. In verse 1 he says that everybody, or he indicates something that everybody wants. Everybody wants security, stability. Everybody wants to be stable. And so he says, be, stand firm. Now if you were to describe your life tonight, would you describe it as, as a life of stability, of security? Um, I love that new uh, Chevrolet commercial, I, I'm a rock. You remember that? You, you've heard that? I love that. I am a rock. I'm as strong as I can be. I am a rock. Nobody can bother me. If you had to take a Crayola tonight and draw a picture of your life, would you draw a picture of a rock or a yo-yo? I'd have to draw a picture of a yo-yo. 
The other day I was looking over some of the entries I made in my journal. I, I keep a journal. And I read this about a day that I was experiencing. Lord, I feel like wax that's melted under the stress. And I feel like the leaves that blow down the street on the west side of my house chased by the north wind. You ever felt like that? I feel some, most of the time, I feel more like running, fleeing, hiding than standing firm. I think most of us are like that. In verse 2 he says that everybody wants to live in harmony. Everybody, I think, wants that. And probably a few of you have had at least one or two conflicts with one or two different people. It's hard to get along with other people, isn't it? And yet the desire within us is to live in harmony, and harmony eludes us. Verse 3, we want, to, we want joy. Or verse 4, we want joy. And what he's talking about there is this well, deep well of joy. Wasn't much laughter probably in your heart this past week. You may have kept the tears out of your eyes, but you may not have kept them out of your soul. And all of us want joy and find little of it. Verse 8, we want to think good thoughts, positive thoughts. We want to think good things, dwell on good thoughts, and yet we're constantly bombarded with negative thoughts and with, uh, and with the problems of a world that's under stress and fear controls us so that we don't think positive thoughts most of the time. We think thoughts of fear and anxiety. In verse 9, we want to practice what is right. And we'd like to live on this level of doing the right things. And we know that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And all of us have to confess that we don't normally, most of the time, live the way we want to live. And one of the greatest frustrations of the Christian life is that we want to be what we are not. And as a result, we have a tremendous level of anxiety. The believer lives in a fast rushing current of anxieties like a river that's cascading down to an impact somewhere down the stream. There is a fable in India about a mouse who was afraid until he met a magician. And the magician turned him into a cat and everything was fine until he met a dog. The cat met a dog. So the cat went back, the mouse turned cat now went back to the magician and the magician changed him into a tiger. And everything was fine now. The mouse turned cat turned dog was now a tiger until he came back to the magician and complained that he'd met a hunter. And the magician said, I'm going to change you back to a mouse for even though you have the body of a tiger, you have the heart of a mouse. And so we put on our our tiger suits and we put on our tiger face and we go out and meet the world with a heart that's full of fear and anxiety. And in the midst of this, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Don't you just love that? When somebody comes up to you and says, well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about a thing, you know. 
And that just adds to the frustration. When somebody tells me, you know, I shouldn't worry, that just adds to my frustration. It just compounds the problem. That's really not what the apostle's getting at here. He's saying in this time that is where you have this level of anxiety that, that you can't get the world off your soul, shoulder, there's, there's something to substitute for that anxiety, and that's prayer. Now, I'm going to say something tonight that's a lot more uh, theoretical than it is perhaps practiced or practical for many of us. Prayer, when it is done right, when prayer is right, it is an answer to anxiety. Prayer that's right is an answer to anxiety. And it is the normal, out, natural outflow of faith. It's the reaction of a child crying out to his father. And when it is right, it takes the place of anxiety. For we're carrying loads, most of us, that we were never designed to carry. Not long ago, I was going down the street, somewhere between here and my humble abode, and I saw this little kid pulling a wagon, and he was going down the street pulling this little red wagon, uh, just kind of tottering along there, had a couple of things in the back, didn't even notice what was in it. When I got on down to about uh, Washington and Elm Street, there were some people doing some construction work down there on one of those places. And they had this big backhoe machine in there, and they had a big dump truck, and they had this front loader, and they were dumping this huge uh, piles of dirt in this uh, dump truck. And every time they'd drop it in, that dump truck would just sag and bounce, you know, had big old dual tires. A thought came to me, and what if that little boy came down the street and decided he wanted a load of that front load Give me a load of that in my little wagon here. It smashed that wagon to smithereens. A little red wagon is not designed for that kind of load. Folks, hear me now. Our lives as they are are not designed to carry the load we have to carry. And that's why Peter said, cast all your cares upon him. Take the load and transfer it to Him. Now how do you do that apart from prayer as it's really to be prayed? Now you say, wait a minute now. Every time I hear a sermon on prayer, I feel guilty because I just don't do enough of it. You're about to get over into the, into the guilt range. Now, now I'm not going to do that. I remind you of Bonhoeffer who was executed by Hitler when he was 45 years old. This saintly man said at the age of 45 as he was executed for his faith, there's so many things about my prayer experience that I'm ashamed of. And all of us have quoted Martin Luther and everybody knows that he prayed three hours every day and yet this man was riddled with guilt. Let me name you some names of some men 
who have felt the same feelings you feel about your prayer life. E.M. Bounds, Alexander McLaren, G. Campbell Morgan, A.W. Tozier, Peter Marshall, Billy Graham, all of them are dissatisfied with their prayer life. And the reason why is we've made prayer something unattainable. And prayer has become a victim of our unrealistic standards. And we have made, given prayer, a standard that not even spiritual giants can pull off. And somehow, we need to bring prayer back to the place of a child talking to his father. Now Matthew 6. Let me say in preface and by, by, way, by way of background that Jesus stepped into a world that was extremely religious. Religious? They had shells of religion. And, his, and in this first century world where Jesus came, they were committed to prayer. As a matter of fact, there has never been a century where people had took prayer more seriously than the first century into which Jesus stepped. The only problem with the people in that first century was uh, that they couldn't pray enough. They wanted to pray all day, and their only regret was that they couldn't. I mean, you talk about people committed to prayer. And the more intense they became to be, to be pious, the more intense was their desire to piety the greater standard they placed on prayer and more and more things were laid upon them. And these religious people said, these are the things God requires of you as a person of prayer. And they laid this heavy load on them concerning prayer and there was this enormous guilt that was associated with it. Now the historians tell us that prayer began to de degenerate in that first century as the direct result of that, the direct result of five things. The first was formalism. Prayer became standardized, institutionalized, formal. The second thing was ritual. So that they prayed three times a day, had to pray at nine, had to pray at noon, had to pray at three. And there was this particular stance they had to assume. They had to stand with their hand, their palms up, upward, and they either had to look straight up into heaven or straight down to the ground. They had a, a, a certain stance they had to assume. And their prayers, thirdly, were filled with verbiage. There is a prayer on record that had 16 adjectives in front of the name of God, you know, holy, righteous, loving, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, all these names in front of God. It was, it was long, drawn-out stuff, and these men, fresh from the fishnets, couldn't pull it off. And then there was repetition. There were words repeated over and over again, and they had a stated prayer for everything. They had a prayer when they entered the building and when they left it. They had a prayer connected to light and to lightning and to fire, and on and on it went, and it led to pride. For if you have to be pious, do all these things in order to be pious. If you don't do them, 
You're not pious if you do them. Look how pious I am. And so they begin to pray on street corners where everybody could see them and in the synagogues with trumpets no less so that when a man got ready to pray, he brought his own band along with him and the band played the trumpets and the guy stood up to pray. Is it any wonder that Jesus ruffled their feathers when Jesus said, that's not the way you do it? No wonder he made them mad. No wonder he ruffled their feathers when he began to set up what really is involved in prayer. And he gathered his people around him and said, when you pray, watch out for three things. Now, I would, if I was interested in knowing how to make this prayer life important, I'd listen here. Watch out for three things. Verse 5 of chapter 6, watch out for hypocrisy. When you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their full reward, their reward in full. Be, don't beware of hypocrisy. The word means the one behind the mask. Don't be one of those nine and noon and three boys saying, look how I'm doing. You know, the longer, the more I read the scripture, the more I understand how God hates pretense. The more I understand about Jesus, the more I understand how he despises hypocrisy. Now he said, if you're one of those folks that love to be seen when you pray, and you're praying and somebody says, wow, what a prayer. You've gotten there, wow, and that's all you're going to get. In fact, he said, they have their Reward. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It means a, it's a word for receipt. It means to be paid in full, no further payment. When you want the praise of men, that's all you get. You get it, that's all you get. When you want to be seen, you're seen, and that's your full reward. Does that mean there be no public prayers? No. Public prayers are vital in the Scripture. But how we do them is extremely important. And what he's saying is, is this, that even when you're praying in a crowd, you're more conscious of him than you are the crowd. A few years ago, I met a man by the name of Henry Blackaby. Henry Blackaby was pastor of the Faith Baptist Church in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and He's called the, he was called the George Mueller of Canada. If you've read George Mueller's life story, he's this great German um, who prayed and all these miracles. But anyway, um, uh, Henry Blackaby told me one day, he said, I'm going to pray you into Canada. I mean, he had these wonderful, wonderful stories of his prayer life. In the providence of God and the, in the unfolding of God's plan, Henry Blackaby now is with the Home Mission Board. He lives in Atlanta. And he is um, the person who is leading Southern Baptist to, the, to, a, to an understanding prayer. He is the godliest, most pious man I have ever met. 
He's come out with a new book. It's The Rage now. In fact, he's, he was just, he was on uh, over at Tishomingo not long ago doing a deal. Some of the guys, y'all had a guy from, who was in, experienced that, that time with Henry Blackaby back on the campus a couple of weeks ago. And he's got this whole new concept that prayer is just experiencing, what he calls experiencing God. Experiencing God. Now listen to me carefully. Jesus said, go into your room, and it's not a glass room. Nobody needs to know anything about how you pray except God. You go in your room, and you spend that unpretentious time with God. And any time that you spend with God is time so that you can be seen of men, or you can brag about it, or you can... Check out a, you know, a box on your Sunday school envelope is hypocrisy. All right, second. He says, when you pray, don't use repetitious words. Let's look at it. And when you're praying, verse 7, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. When I read this, I think of 1 Kings 18 and the prophets of Baal all day long. Oh, Baal, oh, Baal, yes, oh, Baal. When I read this, I, I think of Acts 19 when Paul came into Ephesus and they, the people were repeating, Great is Diana of Ephesus over and over. Folks, will you promise that you'll make an effort to give up all the cliches that are a part of your prayer life? Dwight L. Moody, this saintly man, was being blessed by the Holy Spirit and God was upon his life. And one time Dwight L. Moody got up and prayed two words, God, stop. Couldn't stand it anymore. I have a feeling if we prayed two words, it'd be God, start. You know, <laughs> do something. Try not to use the word bless all the time. You want to know how to pray? Listen to a child. And so Stephen, age eight, said, Lord, I'd like to go to heaven because I know my brother won't be there. Now that's, that's, <laughs> that's getting on down to the nitty-gritty. I mean, they're cutting through the stuff. And Christine, age nine, said, God, I know you love me, but I wish you'd give me an A on my report card so I could be for sure. And one little boy prayed, God help my mother lose 20 pounds. She's tried Weight Watchers and it doesn't work. All right. You want to know how to pray? Listen to a new Christian pray. That's who you listen to. I remember when I was a kid growing up, the principal of our high school, superintendent of our high school was named C. Sidney Cox. And he prayed the longest prayers. He had the Guinness Book of World Records. I... Whenever I heard my pastor call on him to pray the benediction, I mean, it's pretty good to handle it through the, but at the benediction, when you're hungry and you're already tired, and it goes on and on and on. When you want to hear somebody pray, listen to a new Christian pray. I love Howard Hendricks' illustration about the guy who had just been saved about a month. And he was in this prayer meeting, and they, was, they were in a circle, and he was the fourth, and he was counting them up. 
forth, forth I'm going to have to pray. He'd never prayed before. Time came to him, and he, oh, oh, he said, oh, well, hi, God. He said, I'm Sam. You know, I met you a couple of weeks ago. I'm the guy that lives over here. I thought he was going to give him his zip code. <laughs> when your child comes to you and says, oh, Father, loving, gentle, kind, patient, good, what do you think? You think they're up to something. You know, what's he after? You know what I'm saying? And all of a sudden, you're on a defense. Jesus said, look at this. When you pray, say, Father, I adore you. Hallowed be thy name. The third thing. When you pray, don't harbor anything against anybody else. Now I want to read verse 23 and 24, chapter 6. No, chapter 5. It scared me too. <laughs> 23 and 24. If, if, if therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. There is a basic principle. The basic principle is this. That the most important thing about prayer is not the prayer but the prayer, but the prayer and the acceptability of the gift is determined by the acceptability of the giver so that when you come to God in prayer, you better come without any resentment or bitterness in your heart toward anyone else. Does prayer change anything? I'm, gonna, I'm telling my age now, but I, I remember my grandmother used to listen to E.F. Weber. H how many of you remember him he, he, from Oklahoma City? E.F. Weber? Y'all remember him? Oh, I appreciate it. <laughs> he was this old Methodist preacher, preached on the radio, didn't he, Margaret? You, we used, and uh, he'd come on with this, this, little, this little phrase. God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Donald Gray Barnhouse shocked the world when he said three words, prayer changes nothing. Now does that shock you? Prayer changes nothing. Do you agree with that? And then he went on to say, it is God who changes things, not prayer. But I, I kind of disagree with Donald Barnhouse just a little bit. Prayer does change something. Prayer changes me. Prayer does change me. And when I come and pray, I'm not informing God of anything, and yet he says for me to tell him everything. And the reason why it's so important for me to tell him everything is because I change in the process of telling him. I can't harbor this. I've dumped it. 
I can't bear this burden. I've turned it over to him. I don't need to meditate on this any longer because it's his now. And so he says in this passage, three times, don't be anxious. Prayer is not, is not getting my will done in heaven. Prayer is getting God's will done on earth. And when I pray, something happens in me. Have you tried it? Our Father, we, we love you. We are so unstable and so frightened. We're crushed by the burdens we've had to bear. Father, take them tonight. And may the peace of God, which goes beyond all comprehension, Indeed, guard our hearts and minds. Christ Jesus. That indeed we might find that security, that stability, that ability to get along with others because we're at peace with ourselves. That indeed we might find that joy that's like a well springing up Oh, yes, that we might be able to concentrate on the positive things with hope and not be harassed by fear. Lord, help us to make prayer the heart of our life and our day. Father, holy Precious Father, in Jesus' name. Now in a spirit of prayer, this, this moment, would you, is anybody here, head still bowed, eyes closed, is anybody here would like to step out of their place while the organist and pianist comes, maybe to give your heart to Christ or to join this fellowship, to commit your life to the Lord? Step out and come while we wait.